Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power of Why podcast. I'm Jeanette Collazo, your host. So today we're going to continue the topic that we started last week, um, in which we discuss why do we always, um, why do we see and not always, why do we look and not always see? And we started talking about some concepts in the latest, in the last episode, in which we talk about the fact that we see a fraction of what we look at. We talked about the quiet eye. We talked about continuation mistakes, like in movies, for example. So we decided to discuss this topic because there is a lot, a lot to cover. But in the last episode, we talked about those concepts. Now, today I want to talk about some examples and some other things that occur and give you a little bit more of reality of what I see with my clients and in general, of course. So I want to talk about those today. So we're going to put in quote unquote in a practical way of how does this manifest in the organization. Organization. There is a lot of concern about, you know, the accuracy of our performance and you know, we, we need, we need to see things. We need to be able to read and comprehend. We need to be able to see all the details of what we're working with. So when we talk about these limitations, then we have to consider the fact that they do impact and affect our performance. And that's why we want to work with this topic. So now let's talk about, for example, optical illusions. Okay. And optical illusions are, and I'm pretty sure that you have seen maybe in social media or something in a, in a training in which you study person. And optical illusions are those things that actually a visual phenomena that deceive our perception and make us see things differently than they actually are. All right, so they occur where there is a discrepancy between the physical reality of an object or scene and how our brain interprets the process that and process that information. So, and I'm pretty sure, um, and I'm going to put some of these examples in uh, Facebook and Instagram because they're optical illusions and I cannot explain a lot about them, but I do want, I want you to look for these examples. I will label them and let you know which one it is. And I will explain also in, in those posts, but I, but I want to discuss a little bit about that. For example, there is different types of optical illusions, for example, geometrical illusions, and this is the manipulation of lines, shapes, and angles to create distortion or illusions of death. So now you see that I can see something and not necessarily perceive, or I can see something, perceive something, but not necessarily the reality of what's there. There is also ambiguous illusions, and these are some of these present images or patterns that can be perceived in multiple ways. So that means that it's going to why it's ambiguous. So there are, for example, there is one that it's called the Necker Cube and the Rubin's base. Those are two, and I'm going to put them also, in which you are going to see different, two different things depending on how your brain is processing the information. So again, consider the fact that we are looking at things and we are perceiving certain things, but not necessarily they're correct, right? Motion illusions, and I'm pretty sure you have seen some of these, that you look at an object or a visual and you experience a movement from a stationary image. Color illusions, 
And I don't know if you remember the dress that was, you know, I think it was purple or gold. And there were some issues associated to that. Some people would see it, the gold dress. Some people would see the purple dress. So even though it's the same color, I mean, it's, it's just how your brain works with the information. So, and again, talking about the color of Inutians, there is one that it's called the Hermann grid. And these are, it's a grid. It's, you know, these squares, a lot of squares. And in between them, there is kind of a grayish tone when in reality is white. So that's another one. So we also have size or proportion Inutians. There is one that is called the table turning right? And this is a picture of two tables and they look different in size, but they're actually identical. Also, I'm going to put in the visuals that I want to, you know, discuss. So the fact that we see it differently is because of orientation and the way, again, our brains calculate certain things based on what they see and not what they actually are. That's why I always say you want to see, you know, that you want to make sure that this is this size. You have to measure it. In God we trust, everybody else, facts and data, because that this could happen. And that's why um, we are talking about this. So some of the examples of optical illusions are the Ponzo illusion. Okay, I'm going to put it in the post. This illusion consists of two lines with an arrow-like fins or tails at either end. One line has inward-pointing fins, while the other one has outward pointing fins. And even though the lines are actually the same length, the one with the outward pointing fins appear longer than the one with inward pointing fins. So you see, that's that's how um, our brains are going to analyze that. The Hermann grid illusion, I'm also going to put it there, the motion artifact, and the Rubin's base of illusion in which we see either a vase or faces and that kind of thing. So this shows us that we might really think that what we're looking at is totally correct when in re- or, or a specific thing when in reality there are other things around it. So the way the brain works is not necessarily going to help us in this process. Following that same line, we have to talk about the fact that we see what we expect to see. And I'm going to give you an example of when I see this in the industry. So when we are looking for something or, or we basically see what we expect to see, that's what usually happens. And an example would be, this is something that I see all the time. In the industries that I work with, there is a lot of documentation that's that it's very important. It will be audited and it needs to be correct, complete, and all of that. So in order to make sure that the information is correct, complete, and it makes sense and all of that, we do certain, you know, the person documents and there are other checks, right? Another person comes and says, well, let me do the check by. So they look at the data and they say, well, it's correct, or I'm, I'm going to approve it or something like that. Now, the problem with this is that I'm going to see what I'm expecting to spend. When these things happen, this is the dynamic. I get assigned to work in this particular, let's say a packaging line, right? So I'm assigned to that line and I have to do the process and document, right? But it's, it, you know, that that's what I'm doing. But there is a checker, right? The person that's going to evaluate or, you know, check again. So that person is there. So what happens is that that checker, his only or her only job is to 
capture and detect errors, right, in the documentation. Now, when I start working with somebody that I have not worked before or I am not, com it's not usual for me, usually I don't trust that person. So I'm going to look for errors. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for mistakes. And if you know what you're looking for, then the likelihood of finding them increases. So what happens is that check, it's one of them. But then there is another verification. And then after the verification, there is an approval. So now we're talking talking about four steps, documenting, checking, verifying, approving. Now, forget about what it means, checking and approving. That's a, a different topic, but let's talk about those four steps. Now, the first time that I'm working with you, I'm going to look for mistakes. So I find them. And then of course there are other checks, but here is the thing. Usually when I start getting used to working with Maria, for example, And I see that usually I check and there are no mistakes. It's like everything is fine. Everything is fine. Like, like it usually happens, you know, most of the times it's going to be correct. So whenever I evaluate, I know that Maria doesn't really make mistakes. So at some point without me noticing, I shift my intention or what I'm looking for to, from not trusting Maria to trust her and trusting her and saying she never makes a mistake. So what we are doing in that check is trying to validate what we think, which is she doesn't make a mistake. So what we are doing is looking at the data and what happens in that moment is that your brain fixes the data. So you see it correct because that's your, what you're expecting to see. And, and that's how our brain works. It creates the, the image. And I'm going to give you an example in a, another example in a minute. But what happens is that I'm not looking for that. Now, let's add something else because we have other people that are going to do verifications and approvals. So somebody has to capture that. Now, the problem with this is that we find what we're looking for, right? That's, that's the thing. But when we have so many checks, what is happening is that we are diluting their responsibility. So I'm not responsible for the correctness of the data. I'm just responsible for checking. And I checked and there are no mistakes. There is a mistake, but I didn't see it. But now it goes to the verification and the verification usually thinks, well, you know, this is usually correct when I see it. But on the other hand, somebody else, you know, already checked. So I'm not that interested in finding anything because the checker should have discovered it. So I'm not even going to look that. And, and, and again, this is happening unconsciously. But then after that, so I sign off with the error right there. And then you have the approval and the approval thinks the same thing. There was somebody that did it correctly. There is a check. There is a verification. It must be correct. So they sign off. And that's how errors travel through the process. You have so many barriers of defense and detection mechanisms, but you are not matching the brain process that should go, you know, with that. Now, how do we work with this? Well, We work by rewarding when you find something because, and I'm going to read something about that, because when we are successful in, in our execution, that level of effectiveness and that level of ability and so on, it will multiply. It will, you know, repeat itself over and over again. So what's going to happen? And I'm going to continue to find errors when they exist. But the way of doing this is making sure that people understand that what they're looking for 
is errors. Their job is not to make sure is correct. The job is to make sure that there are no errors, which in turn, it's that it's correct. But for that, I need to be looking for mistakes. That's what I'm looking for. And that's why when we do training for verifiers, we let them know, look, the operator is doing the activity and he, he has to document and then you have to check. But the responsibility of that being correct means that you have to find the error, right? So your responsibility is to find the error. That's your responsibility. And if the error travels, it's not the operator's responsibility. It was your responsibility because you're the one doing the checking. So that's why we need to make sure that people understand the, the, the percentage, if you will, of the responsibility of what they do. Even though we have four signatures, you are not responsible for 25%, which is what you do when you distribute the 100% in four of us. It's 100% you, it's 100% you, it's 100% you, and it's 100% you. And that way, it's going to be um, the way we are going to assign responsibility. And people need to know that because people don't want to get in trouble. So that's going to be a conscious decision. Look, attention is a conscious decision. Is what I say. I'm going to pay, you know, undivided attention. I'm going to make sure that I, you know, capture everything. And that needs to be an exercise that happens before starting the activity. So when you train people on these things, you have to let them know. Most people don't capture things because they're not looking for that because you really think there is nothing there. And when that happens, our brain is going to make sure it fixes whatever is wrong right there. Also, there have been studies on the field of visual search. Okay, and I'm going to give you an example of a very interesting example, and it has to do with the fact that it's called the case of the missing beer. Okay, so this is this is what happened. Okay, you might search for the beer. You know, you're going to look for the beer in the refrigerator. Let me put you in context first. So you're going to look for the beer in the refrigerator. So you might search for the beer by looking at a certain shelf of your refrigerator because you know the beer is usually placed on that shelf. But what if the beer gets moved to make room for other groceries? Now what you're looking for is not where you expect it to see. Okay, it's there but it's not where I expected to see, which happens with tools in the organization and other, and other things. And that's why we use 5S for that. So in that case, you might search by the shape of the bottle or can, right? But other items in the refrigerator might have the same shape. A can of Coke, for example, might resemble a can of beer. So you might hunt log and hard before you find what you are looking for. And the problem here is that we give up. Now, here's the thing. I'm looking for something that might not be in the place where it is. So I'm going to spend some time, but at some point I'm going to give up and then say, I can't find it. Right? So in reality, we are, we are built to quit. So, and that threshold for quitting, right, you know, observers have a quitting threshold. 
basically the amount of time they will look for something before giving up. So if I don't, you know, I don't have anything that motivates me to keep on looking that I will give up. And it happens all the time. You know, I see this also in when I revise documents at some point, if I'm not finding anything and then I say, this is not the document, but not necessarily. Maybe it's there. I'm just not looking hard enough. I quit because I have my perception. I have ideas. And I really think, you know, I'm not going to waste time on this. So in this case, I'm going to give you an example. And again, it's in the book for Hallinan. And it's in, I have mentioned this before, but I want to read it from the source. And it has to do with the fact that, and, and the quitting threshold and all of that, With it, it, it's an example about TSA. And again, I know I have received, talked about this before, but let me just read it. So both baggage screeners at airports and radiologists, I want to mention both of it, at hospitals spend the bulk of their time looking for things they rarely see. Okay, so I'm looking for things that I don't usually see. And that creates a problem because if you don't see it often, you often don't see it. Right. So when this happens, we are built and perhaps hardwired to give up, to quit early when the target is unlikely to be there. I mean, it's really dumb to spend vast amounts of time searching for some things that are not there, right? So you're going to quit. It's like, yeah, well, I, rarely, I rarely see it. It's, it's basically the same thing that happened with Maria and the, and the documentation and verification example. So in the case of radiologists, Routine mammograms reveal tumors only 0.3% of the time. In other words, 99.7% of the time, they won't find what they're looking for. Okay? And, and bear with me. Now, let's talk about, you know, TSA, for example. Now, guns. Guns are even rarer, Right? In 2004, again, I'm talking about these numbers because of the book, but they, you know, I've looked for this data and pretty similar also. In 2004, according to the Transportation Security Administration, 650 million passengers traveled in the United States by air, but screeners found only 598 firearms. That's roughly one gun for every million passengers. So literally one in a million, right? So both occupations, not surprisingly, have considerable error rates. Several studies suggest that the miss rate for radiologists hovers in the 30% range. Okay. Depending on the type of cancer involved, though the error rate can be much higher, it's because I'm looking for something specifically. Okay, Actually, it's a very frightening situation because there is a study that was performed at the Mayo Clinic in which they went back and checked the previous normal chest x-rays or patients who subsequently developed lung cancer. What they found was horrifying. Up to 90% of the, of the tumors were visible in the previous x-rays. Not only that, the researchers noted the cancers were visible for months or even years. The radiologists had simply missed them. So 
90% of cancerous tumors are missed. And that's why I know that there are new, there is new technology for this in which, you know, it's helping us identify and detect things because we're humans. And, and again, we, we look and not always see. So we can talk about, you know, things that are non-consequential, but consider the fact that there are other things that are very critical. And I remember that in the last episode, I talked about the fact that this was very dangerous for jury. But actually, what I meant to say was with witnesses, okay? Actually, it does happen with jury also, because there's perception and analysis and other things that might lead to the wrong conviction. But when it comes to witnesses, there is a lot of issues when it comes to identifying, you know, the perpetrator, for example. In the book, there is a case that it's discussed, and it's about this woman that was going to, you know, was done with her shift at the hospital. This was a nurse, and she was at the bus station waiting for the bus to go home, but there was a person or a man standing beside her, and she was kind of, on, you know, I don't feel very safe here. You know, she was feeling something that might not be totally right here. So she would be like, you know, using her peripheral vision to evaluate what was happening and so on. Well, eventually it happened. The man attacked her and and she saw her face, his face. And finally, she got away from the guy or whatever. The point is that she goes to the hospital. And when the police comes and takes all the, you know, the statement, she basically described the person. And, and specifically, she described the shoes. You know, he was holding her from her neck and she's looking down. So she remember uh, the brand of the shoes, the color of the shoes, and some specific details about the shoes. Okay. Now, she did see the, the face. Right. So eventually they come back with pictures, right, of some people that might be sub, uh, suspects. And she sees this face and she, she says, this is the person. This is the person. Now, when it comes to the trial, she says that she was looking um, because now it's not a picture. Now you're looking at somebody's eyes and it's a human and it has flesh and blood. And at this moment, it becomes real because now you're going to say if that person is going to jail or not, right? You're the, you're the witness. You were the one attacked. You're the victim, right? So she was expecting to look at his eyes. And she says that when she looked at him, even though she knew she had identified it, there was something that was not, not adding up. All right. Now, when, when the case continues to be investigated, what she was really looking for is that hate in the eyes or that aggression mode, if you will, in the face expression and all of those things. And she did not see this. And also through the investigation, they never found the shoes. So the problem here is that the person was convicted to 30 years um, in prison because of her, you know, recollection of events and the fact that, you know, that that was the person, you know, later on, there was some DNA testing and some other things that, you know, opened other, other cases. And there was, you know, a person that actually was very similar to the man that was convicted that had identified, was identified by other person that was in, you know, in the, in that area. And when they actually checked and, and matched everything, they noticed that they had convicted the wrong person. 
And this woman, she felt so terrible and that she did everything she could to get him, you know, out of jail because he was, and she talks about the fact that she sobbed for days because she was like, how this saw him? I thought it was him, but it's not him. And, you know, it's, it's a terrible situation to be in. So, in this case, well, finally, you know, the person was released, but imagine a situation like that. Look, you know, when it comes to us, you know, we have bias, we have logic, we have common sense, we have our senses. There are many things that are interacting with what we see, what we perceive. And all of these elements have limitations. And, and, and the fact that we have to put all that together means that since humans, we need closure, we are going to connect the dots, whether they connect or not. We need to have a conclusion. We need to finish, you know, this process. And it puts us, puts us in a situation in which we need to close this. And this is what gives closure to, to whatever was happening in my mind. And that's why gossips happen. We add information because missing information needs to be put there. So we create information. We embellish things and we, you know, exaggerate things. And those things after a while become facts. So we have to be very careful because there is a lot of bias, perception, all of these things associated to humans and interaction with the environment that we have to be very careful. And again, especially at work, if we're talking about visual inspection, if we're talking about detection of errors, if we're talking about identifying defects, make sure that people are properly trained on verification techniques, observation techniques, and very well trained on what's the meaning of what I'm looking for. And this, you know, basically I'm referring to checks, verifications, and so on. What is it that you expect from me when I do checks? What is it that you expect from me when I do verification? So that closes this topic. And I know there's going to be a lot more. And if I find out more information, and of course we didn't have time to discuss everything, but I will continue to come to this topic every time we have an example associated to visual inspection and detection, eyeball you know, inspection and detection. All right. So I think that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take it away. Thanks for listening to The Power of Why with your host, Jeanette Collazo. Make sure you subscribe to the show and share. And also you can send us an email to thepowerofwhypodcast at gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you will join us next time.